Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. Hi, this everyone. is so nice. I'm really excited because I haven't seen you in the longest time. So <laughs> I'm like kind of surprised. At how, I'm not surprised, but I'm very emotional about that. Aisha, Bye. are either Katie or Tesh in the room with you? No, they were actually, they both, I, I did invite them upstairs, but they decided they wanted to stay downstairs. I think it was too stressful for them yesterday trying to figure out how to share the one cushion. <laughs> I just want to say, it's very fitting that we have Aisha on today, because I think Aisha and mm-hmm. your apartment was the very first iteration of At The Rectory. <gasps> you, like, you are such an excellent hostess. You would just invite people over after church or you invite people over after all kinds of things. It was very effortless hospitality. So I feel like that was something I definitely learned from you. Aw, I think you're giving me a little too much credit, but I do. I appreciate it. And I, yeah, those were, lots, those were very, very fun times. All right. Well, that's my little memory. So Katie is going to kick off with the actual introduction and then we're going to get into our interview. Listeners to At The Rectory, today is your lucky day because you're meeting one of our favorite people, which is the soon-to-be, I don't know exactly how soon, but very soon-to-be Dr. Aisha Kasichetti, uh, who is originally from Colombo, Sri Lanka, and studied both at the University of Kent and the University of Cincinnati. She is a sociologist. And Aisha, can you explain to us or give us the name of your dissertation? Because you're very interdisciplinary in your interests. Yeah, so my current title, which, (laughs) (laughs) of course, like titles change, right? It's not the same title I had when I started out. But the the current title is Voice, Body, and Identity, um, How Minority Opera Singers Navigate Race and Gender. And you, so your interests are sociology and gender, but also music, because you have quite an extensive background in music. I kind of straddle ethnomusicology and sociology, and um, my, I guess my work sits between those two fields, a little bit of musicology. And I really started getting interested in this because I hadn't planned to do any of this at all when I initially came to the States. Mm -hmm. I was going to do something on like gender and women in Sri Lanka, post-colonialism, some of that kind of stuff. But I took, it was like, it was a variety of classes that I took both in sociology and then I started taking some classes over at CCM. And this one ethnomusicology class I took was super interesting and that it was actually a project that I did for that class that sort of sparked the my dissertation project ultimately. Okay so we should explain to our audience that CCM is the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music and that's where David our sound man and Stephen Hanna who was our first guest was Stephen our first guest? 
He was. I think so, yeah. Yeah, where they have trained, and this is a very posh institution that was not originally part of um, the University of Cincinnati, but sort of a, a marriage happened low these many years ago, and now it is part of the same university system. But um, so you took an ethnomusicology class there too, but you also took like straight up music classes there. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm still taking voice lessons. Um, <laughs> And this year, I like because that because of COVID, it gets to happen virtually, so I can still do it, even though I'm not in Cincinnati anymore. Is it weird? It's different. It's very different because there's a lot of the physical elements that you can't really do over video. I mean, singing is obviously so physical, but I it's some it's it's the I mean it's not the part that most people are paying attention to. So I think that's also interesting because in your dissertation title, you talk about body. Mm -hmm. as well as voice right it's just you're kind of bringing maybe we kind of put voice up here you're kind of bringing the body forward and how we have to pay attention to that too yeah that's actually that chapter is the most underdeveloped one at the moment but yeah but it's really fascinating because i'm talking about all of these ideas of well race and the body and like also the body is producing sound but then the uh, and then racialized sound which is seen as like when you hear when people hear race in the voice but that's a lot of that is social construction obviously because and because of the associations of like what sounds are associated with certain types of bodies but then mm -hmm. with a particularly with a genre like opera which is so highly trained that mm -hmm. te technically you're trained to sound in this very specific way but people still claim they can hear race are you working with like 21st century operas? Like, are you wrestling with that? Or are you like, are you doing in that chapter in particular, are you doing more historical operas and how they were cast and things like that? Or is this like a, um, kind of wrestling with the current questions of America in the 21st century? So I do have another chapter that talks about casting and representation and like the actual more of the visual uh, representational roles and stuff like that on stage. Um, but this is like really going into how, because I asked a bunch of questions about how we think about their bodies and when they're singing, when they're not, when they're not performing and like their racialized bodies. And so it's like, so it's looking at that data. So the thing that I was really interested in talking to you about, and there are there are many, but I can talk to you on the phone at any time that I wish, is about this racialized voice thing. Because it's so funny of all the things that I've been deconstructing over the last number of years, this is one of those things that has stuck out in my mind of, well, yes, I can tell by listening to someone, like what racial group they're in. And part of my brain thinks that has to be nonsense. But is there a word for that phenomenon, Aisha? And can you tell us, like, what are the consequences of this concept that we can hear race in the voice? Well, I mean, I think... So what's fascinating about this, and I'm not sure if this is a direct answer to your question, but a lot of times when people say they can hear race in voices, that has to do with other types of uh, non, like non-biological things, like accent, where you can place, like, like right. where you think about location where where someone where someone from, and like as opposed to the raw sound of voice. So that's actually a really great book by an ethnomusicologist. Um, which deconstructs a lot of this whole idea of black black voices or like black timbre 
which actually like mm. one of my participants, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be saying this, but one of my participants like literally said like, oh yeah, we call that BT, like black chamber, which is not like, it's like something like within the, the green of the voice or like something that's not, like something that's purely biological versus like a social construct. But of course we know that race, like race as a biological thing is also like a social construct. It's just like all of these years and years of association that have created a set of sounds that people associate with different race, different racial groups. And that can now also be, that people claim can be heard in like a lot of my a lot of my participants even like black participants said that like oh yeah i can tell a black voice or like a black opera singer like if you if you like let me listen to three different sopranos i can tell you which like what race they are and but. is it only to do or only attached with blackness or is there are there other racialized groups that um where there's a phenomenon of people claiming they can tell the sound of the voice and like another like name for a timbre for another group or is this primarily is this primarily grown out of like anti-black prejudice? Well, primarily blackness, but for so the the author, the ethnomusicologist, um, the author of the book, I have it somewhere here. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Aisha's apartment was one of those places where I not only read the title of all the books on the spines, but I felt free to pull those books off the shelves. Oh, the race of sound. And who's mm -hmm. the author? Um, Nina Sun Aichem. So she is, um, she's a professor at some Californian university. I don't remember which one, but she was actually, she, she was, um, she's of Asi Asian origin, was adopted by someone in, I think, Norway and lived there all of her, like as a baby, lived there all of her life, had all of her vocal training and everything there. And then when she moved to America, someone said something about her having an Asian sound. And that's sort of, that's what sparked her whole interest in like this idea of like, wait, what? Like I've never even been to it, like, or I've not had any association with that. Like how, and like I've been trained in this other school of like voice training, but, now I moved to America and suddenly I'm like seen as an Asian and heard as an Asian. And That's fascinating. Yeah. And really, I mean, she was socialized in Northern European whiteness. Mm -hmm. I feel like that just tells us a lot about America and what, what we're obsessed with, which is mm -hmm. identifying people as the other as quickly as possible um, and in a very particular way. Um, Aisha, you you kind of reference this as like of course race is, race race is a social construct i wonder if you could just take us to like sociology 101 for a hot second because this <laughs> is such an important topic that we understand and if we could kind of chat about this with our listeners what do we mean when we say race is a social construct because a lot of people would say well i can see difference and as we've been talking about, I can hear difference. What do you mean race is socially constructed? Humans like to categorize and they categorize for the purpose of understanding. And also like in terms of categorizing people, part of that is for 
identity reasons like that like you define your own identity as partly about as who you are but also as who you are not so having these different categories help people make sense of the world race is one of these many things that people have come up with because also, uh, of course as you know that like race is not there's no one biological marker that you can point to and say oh like everyone who has this very specific thing is of this race like there's no there is there's a lot more uh biological variation between people of the same race than necessarily between people of different races mm-hmm. um but so people have picked this thing that like skin color and determined that this is a category on which to differentiate groups of people so like the visual cue actually tells me a lot more about you than just what you look like yeah well, right the social, cultural uh background that you're associated with go ahead ann so aisha you were talking about sometimes you know we've just chosen skin color as the kind of mark or differentiation that was a you're different uh, right. Um, but actually, there was a study done um, of like in a science classroom, they kind of extracted DNA and then processed it. And they were really shocked to find that they had a lot more DNA in common with someone who was, quote unquote, from a different race than mm-hmm. someone who was of the same race. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were really kind of you kind of strip back some of the social racial markers that we kind of use to identify these different groups and you're seeing that dna structures are just so similar across the board and so that was just kind of connecting for me as what you saw is like yeah it's just kind of the arbitrary markers that we use they are not without power because power structures have been infused in them but when you kind of like poke around (laughs) and dig down to it it doesn't hold much water. Um, mm-hmm. Skin color is just like the most arbitrary way to separate people. Um, right, like you could literally pick eye color and say everyone with blue eyes is of a certain race, or everyone with brown eyes is of another race. Yeah, we try. We did try that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It wasn't very good. Aisha, I'm also wondering because for our listeners who are, they're not going to see you, they're only going to hear you. You sound quite British. And I wonder if when you're studying race and voice, if this is, is this bringing up some of your own, I don't know, stuff where, where people are surprised to learn that you're from Sri Lanka or if you get misidentified as maybe Indian. Does that make sense? Funnily enough, I mean, and so in America, I'm typically um, misidentified as Indian. But like on our last trip to Sri Lanka, several people told me that I sounded American. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did you say y'all? <laughs> I don't know if I picked that up quite by that at that time. <laughs> is it is it kind of like disconcerting for you to because you did spend time in England so I think that complicates things for you but you're like are you ever like no I have a Sri Lankan accent like do you ever like kind of defend I don't know 
Uh oh, you froze again. No, because I don't think I have actually a Sri Lankan accent, nor do I have an American accent, nor do I really have a British accent. I sort of have a weird combination of like the, all the places where I've lived and like the sounds that I've picked up over the years. Other Sri Lankans don't like if you visited Sri Lanka, like they don't sound like me. Well, Aisha, yeah. wasn't there a guy on an airplane once that mm. heard you speak and said, oh, kind of got up in your business, was like, oh, uh, Tamil, Singhala? Yeah. I, I can't, I, wow, I can't believe <laughs> I had forgot, completely forgotten about that. I must have told you about that like years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you have a very good memory, Katie. I remember all your sassy comebacks. Well, I don't even remember what I said, but I definitely, yeah, I do remember that incident of someone like asking me what my... <laughs> What, what, which racial group I was like, What I remember was that he said Tamil or Sinhala and you said English and put your headphones in and like turned your face away. And I was like, oh, mm." Oh. but that was also like a very, sorry, like a very sensitive question considering like the civil war and everything. It was kind of asking like, what side were you on? Like it has all these other layers that maybe he maybe he didn't intend or maybe he did intend. Um, so yeah, that was a gross encounter. So I, I'm actually curious. Could we rewind back in your life a little bit? And I find with with questions of um, identity and race, we're so uh, trained and encultured into our own categories. And um, I think it's really helpful to get out of our context and hear how other groups or nations sort of think about categories of people. Could you tell us about Sri Lanka and like what are kind of the main categories in what, into which people sort of um, uh, identify themselves and shuffle each other into if you were at home? Like what would be the thing that someone would want to know about your group in order to put you in in a box in Sri Lanka? In terms of race, we, it's mostly, well, I guess we have mostly ethnic groups. So there's the Sinhalese, which is the dominant group in the country. Um, dominant in numbers, dominant in power. What do you mean by dominant? Currently both. But yes, okay. numbers. <laughs> um, yeah, then there's the Tamils. Uh, then there's the Burgers, who were like mixed race people um, through all, with all of the colonization that happened over the over like four hundred and fifty years. Um, and then there's uh, the Muslims, which are both a religion and a racial group. And uh, then the Colombo Chetis, which is a very small minority, which is what I'm technically from, even though, because <laughs> you take your you take your father's uh, ethnic group, you're like sort of placed into these categories. Technically, I'm a mix of a bunch of different groups because my mom's like half burger, like my mom's parents were burger and Sinhalese. So technically, I have all of that. But then, like on your birth certificate, when you're categorized. Um, you, it it goes as the father's ethnic group. I did not know that a Colombo Chetty was your ethnic group, and that is included in your in your last name. Your ethnic group is indicated. There are so few Colombo Chetties, and like everyone sort of knows the Casacetti name. 
like uh, oftentimes your relatives will come or we'll meet a cousin or something like that. They'll come to Cincinnati. And just the, it, it has always been very clear to me the importance of connection. That makes a ton of sense why Casi Chetty as a name would be so significant, even in America, because it's identifying and connecting people who are in, is it, can we say the Sri Lankan diaspora in America? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still like very, very, very powerful. Can we ask about the Civil War? Is that mm-hmm. all right to talk about? Okay. What was at the root of this conflict and how long did it last? Okay. So it lasted for about 30 years. And the root cause was so when, so we were colonized by the British, or the British were the last people to colonize us. And during their, the, during their, time they used a uh, very divide and conquer strategies and Tamils were the minority group but had lots of positions of power within government and like had just had a lot more power and when they when the British left they also left behind a big mess which then like then the Sinhalese people were unhappy that the Tamil people had all of these seeming advantages and tried to reverse that through a variety of discriminatory practices including like the single only act and stuff like that where they it was a whole shift of changing the education system and the legal the systems of governance which were all so far carried out in english but they'd like wanted to change the language and it was it this and this happened over a period of like 20 years also but essentially there was a sort of slow bubbling of these discriminatory practices and then challenges to these i would say that the sort of the catalyst or the the beginning of the war proper was in the early 80s, um, the 83 riots. Um, I don't know if I've lent you any books on this end. Like there are like there are like novels which deal, and even um, even the movie I told, I recommended to you, Funny Boy, sort of deals with this period of time. So there were the 83 riots where essentially the Sinhala people looted, killed, like went around burning houses, killing people. Um, for like three days and like the government didn't do anything about it. So that that sparked a lot of people moving to ja- a lot of Tamil people a, leaving the country if they could. Like lots of people mm-hmm. went to Canada and this is what I was born into in 87. Um, so essentially the whole first 20 some years of my life were in a civil war and I was lucky because I lived in Colombo where it was safer. We still had bombs going off sometimes, but it was not as bad as being up north where all of the action was happening. So what the what the Tamils then wanted and what this what the FTTE wanted was they were trying to get the government to they were trying to establish a de facto separate state in the northern peninsula, Jaffna. And they sort of did. Like they had their own police system. They had like barriers like you couldn't cry you couldn't just go in and out of Jaffna um you had to like go through them yeah so the war finally ended in 2009 I mean I guess as a kid growing up 
it was just always it was my normal right so you don't really think about it as being like oh i have a stranger abnormal life and it shouldn't be this way because it just is but like being careful um and like always having as a like particularly after i started traveling by myself like you always had to have your id on you because sometimes the police would just like stop the bus and like check everyone's id and particularly if you have a Tamil name, like you might get extra, extra scrutiny. And of course, and one of the reasons they did this was because you'd sometimes have like a bomb on a bus, which did happen, mm -hmm. like, like used to happen, like there were bombs on trains, like in public places, in public transportation. What I do remember is the sense of relief that like, like after the war was over, of course there was an adjustment period, but there was an immediate sense of relief and that I didn't like that you didn't even know that you were holding on to mm. uh, to the to all of this anxiety about uh, e about even like day to day things and traveling. Mm -hmm. But and that that sort of got lifted after the war ended. Of course, that doesn't mean that the war is. Act I mean, it's the fighting. The direct fighting part is over, but there's lots of other problems that have not been properly addressed, and that's still bubbling. I mean, but the other thing about your life is it's quite international. Um, you've spent time, in, and now you've spent a significant time in the United States. It's almost six years. Okay, six well, years. Well, five and a half, I guess. Six would be in August. Does that feel crazy for you? <laughs> it does, in a, in a way. But I think I've spent, I've spent enough time here now that, well, I mean, Ruston doesn't feel like home, but Cincinnati feels like home. Um, and it's one of those things that like the last time I was in Sri Lanka and it might have been partly because of the amount of time that had passed between the previous visit and then the last visit but everything felt familiar yet foreign sort of a sense of feeling like yes this all feels familiar but I don't feel like I'm a part of it really anymore mm -hmm. and part of that with my losing losing the language which i'm actually very sad about even though i really against mm -hmm. having studied all of my <laughs> childhood <laughs> but yeah i couldn't i don't i don't speak singular at all anymore right i went to a choir rehearsal for one of the choirs that i used to be a part of in sri lanka i was really excited about it partly because like i'd been really close to the people in this choir and the previous trip that i had that i was back in sri lanka um, I sang with them like I was it, it was the time it was around Christmas time and I was able to I was there in time to be able to participate in their Christmas. But this time when I went to the rehearsal, it felt so different and partly because the membership had changed a little bit. Mm. Um, but also like it just it was very clear I didn't belong there anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I was mad about that for a little bit and then I was like, okay, like right like life moves on and I haven't been there for three years and I don't know like more than half of the choir is now new members and I don't know them I don't have a relationship with them and also like a relationship with the collective like if I'm not in the collective memory but yeah I guess I feel more so <laughs> so Cincinnati feels more like home belonging is where you are investing in relationships but it's also like a choice mm -hmm. you're choosing and you're being very intentional um, about facilitating those relationships and that you can like there's definitely I feel like a, a lot of us can 
um, recognize that kind of loss of, oh, I don't fit here anymore. Oh, this piece of me has now changed. And there's that mm -hmm. grieving process. And then, but maybe when you come back to your home that you've created with the people that you have loved, and it isn't necessarily shaped by maybe outside forces like a common culture or like a common language, but there's something else very human about that. So I'm sorry that that was your experience, but I also love that you have worked so hard and you have been so kind to so many people in Cincinnati. So I think that's really huge. So good job. <laughs> You're in the collective memory here. <laughs> and that's both like, it, it feels painful to go back to a place and realize we don't belong there anymore. But I have to remember sometimes that that's also a blessing because if you were still experiencing exactly the same level of connection to home now that you did when you were there, it would be extremely painful for you to be in the place where you are now. Like there's kind of a process that needs to happen so that you aren't constantly in pain in your current life. And this happens with, you know, with a lot of relationships too. Like when you go to summer camp and you're 13 and oh my gosh, the connections you feel to all the people in your cabin. And then thankfully you don't still feel that when you're 27 to all of those people because you don't have the emotional capacity for it. Like there's kind of a, a helpful disconnection that happens. But that's also why it's important and precious when we choose certain relationships. And then like Anne was saying, we expend energy into maintaining them because we decide you are special. I am going to keep you. But man, oh man, when you first came on and I just had that like rush of emotion, I was just like, there is something about being in a physical space. Like I miss your food, that apartment, those bookshelves, that squishy couch. Like there is something about gathering, but I'm just very grateful that I got to spend actual in-person time in that apartment with Aisha and, and family and whoever else was there. Cause it was always a bunch of us. And I hope we can do it again. Yeah. And like, yeah, and music and music nights, like Katie, you just posted those pictures of music nights at the rectory, like that collective memory. I think we just keep coming back to that. And there's something about eating together mm. that is so powerful. And there's something about making music together. Mm-hmm that is really bonding. And it's a thing that we do with our brains, but it's also a thing we do with our bodies. And it, it, yeah, it's something completely different from anything else. And so I'm really, I'm really grateful that we've all been able to eat together. We've been able to cook together and make music together. Mm -hmm.